Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined by Elizabeth Kelly once again. Elizabeth, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Elizabeth is joining us to help us review our history in the space of mental health and criminal justice. So Elizabeth Kelly has been here before, but I'm going to go ahead and reintroduce her in case you didn't listen to the podcast with her earlier. She is a criminal defense lawyer with a nationwide practice representing people with mental disabilities. So Elizabeth was on before to tell us about a book that she'll refresh our memories on later in this conversation. And as I said, we've invited Elizabeth here today to help us with our review of our section history. And today specifically, we're going to be reviewing what the criminal justice section has done in the space of mental health over our 100 years. This required some research on Elizabeth's part, so we're really especially grateful for her digging in and helping us with this review. So let's start at the beginning. Elizabeth, when did the section begin to consider mental health being related to crime and the criminal justice system? Or what were their earliest steps to explore and address these issues? The criminal justice section from day one in August of 1920 has been very sensitive to the fact that mental disabilities do play a role in the criminal justice system. And in fact, Emily, the criminal justice section has been interdisciplinary even before that word was ever developed. It started collaborations early on with the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, and the Social Science Research Council. And it has always said that criminal defense lawyers should not be siloed. They need to know about other disciplines. And in fact, every stakeholder in the criminal justice system Prosecutors, judges, probation officers, law enforcement all need to know that other things play a role in criminal conduct and, by extension, criminal justice. Thank you. And again, to help with an overview before we dig into more specific historical moments of importance, What have been the more organizational or structural CJS actions to address mental health? Well, first of all, I'd like to clarify. I'm going to be using the term mental disabilities throughout the course of this interview. Mental health in 2020 means things like wellness. And although the American Bar Association has a wonderful record in terms of promoting attorney wellness. When it comes to the criminal justice section, what we're really talking about are mental disabilities. That is to say, mental illness, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depression, as well as intellectual and developmental disabilities, like autism spectrum disorder, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. 
In the very early days of the section, as I previously said, the section started collaborating with other disciplines, namely the medical profession and the psychiatric profession in order to understand, if you will, why people did the things they did and in turn, what the criminal justice section could do in order to give those people the treatment and if possible, the rehabilitation that they needed. The criminal justice section basically mirrors the development of criminal law in this country. That is to say, in the 20s, during the early years of the section, the American public was consumed with prohibition. And about that time, President Hoover convened what is now known as the Wickersham Commission, which was named after a former attorney general. And one of the interesting things that the Wickersham Commission explored was false confessions. That is to say, law enforcement taking the accused, sometimes people who were vulnerable because of mental disabilities, and imposing all sorts of really torturous techniques in order to extract a confession. And as you know, Emily, throughout the years, the criminal justice section has been very active in terms of speaking out against this sort of practice. Then fast forward to the 60s, when some real momentous changes were being made in the criminal justice section because of the civil rights changes, because of the warrant court, the criminal justice system was moving as well. In the 1960s, we saw the U.S. Supreme Court hand down the Dusky decision, which is still in force and effect today, and that basically sets the standard for competency to stand trial. And throughout the years, that has been something that the criminal justice system has grappled with and sought to clarify. In the 1980s, we really saw the criminal justice section up the ante and to speak up and to speak out forcefully. As you may remember, don't quite know how old you are, Emily, but in, in 1982, John Hinckley attempted to assassinate then President Reagan. And he was tried and he was acquitted. And there was a good deal of outrage on the part of the American public because his defense team raised the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. And that basically began the nationwide myth, which unfortunately exists to this day, that the accused are all out there asserting willy-nilly that they are not guilty because of insanity and they're getting off on, quote unquote, a technicality. Now, Mr. Hinckley was tried in federal court. 
And at that point, the standard for insanity was, if you will, less than it is today. And on the heels of the Hinckley verdict in 1984, Congress passed the Insanity Defense Act. And one of the things that it did was change the standard. Now, the defendant has to prove by clear and convincing evidence that he or she was not guilty at the time of the act. And several states ended up repealing their insanity statutes altogether. And some states developed what we call GMBI, guilty but insane. At the same time, the American Bar Association, led by the criminal justice section, passed a very strong resolution reaffirming the importance of insanity, stressing that people should not be held criminally responsible for acts that they could not control and they did not understand, and it also spoke out against changing the insanity standard. And it also spoke out against the new standards that many states had adopted of guilty but insane. Then fast forward to 1984, the criminal justice section developed some very, very comprehensive mental health standards. And those, in fact, are the model for what was passed a few years ago by the criminal justice section and ultimately the ABA House of Delegates. But in 1984, that was a fairly significant document. You may recall, Emily, that in 1964, the ABA had basically caused a sea change in criminal justice by passing very, very comprehensive criminal justice standards, which have become a model for states for almost 60 years. And those standards are regularly updated. But the mental health standards were basically a companion to that document, focusing in on the importance of mental disabilities across the criminal justice system and providing guidance for all stakeholders in the criminal justice system. Then in the 2000s, we saw several important Supreme Court decisions which were hugely significant in the field of mental disabilities. There was the Atkins decision, which in 2002 was handed down by the Supreme Court. And this basically said that it was cruel and unusual to execute someone who was, and this is the term they used at that time, mentally retarded. In other words, it violated the Eighth Amendment. And the Atkins decision basically 
stood as a foundation for other subsequent decisions, not only in death penalty cases and other major crimes, but also for dealing with juveniles and people with mental illness. It was a huge recognition on the part of the United States Supreme Court that science matters, that medicine matters, that psychiatry and psychology matter. And from day one in 1920, the criminal justice section has been saying those same things. So in many respects, the Atkins decision was a victory 80 years later for the criminal justice section, which was extremely prophetic and prescient in its recognition of the importance of other disciplines. Then a couple of years later, the case of Roper v. Simmons was decided. And as you may know, Emily, the criminal justice section and the ADA submitted an amicus brief to the Supreme Court. And it said that on the heels of the Atkins decision, it was cruel and unusual to execute juveniles for homicide offenses. And they cited what they called, or what Justice Kennedy in his brief, later called the evolving standards of decency. That is to say, in the United States, although some jurisdictions did have the death penalty on the books, for juveniles. In fact, it wasn't practiced. And Justice Kennedy, in his brief, also cited the fact that many jurisdictions, if not all jurisdictions, understand that juveniles are different. They can't serve on juries until they're over 18. They can't vote until they're over 18. And in many states, they can't marry without parental consent until they're 18. And Justice Kennedy in his brief also cited international law, which was fairly new in Supreme Court jurisprudence. And Justice Kennedy said, look, only a handful of countries have the death penalty on the books for, for juveniles. And this is my editorial gloss, not Justice Kennedy's. Those are basically countries that we don't like to align ourselves with, countries that do have torture. And what was significant about Justice Kennedy's opinion was that much of the language, as well as the concepts, mirrored that language and those concepts which were articulated in the American Bar Association's brief, which was spearheaded by the criminal justice section. Justice Kennedy cited science, he cited social science, he cited medicine. He cited the fact that brain development is crucial 
and that kids, because of their lack of brain development at that age, are impulsive, don't understand the consequences of their actions, and are susceptible to peer pressure. Again, echoing language, echoing concepts from the American Bar Association's brief. So as you can see, Emily, the criminal justice section has had an evolving role in not only Supreme Court jurisprudence, but also in practices throughout this country. And a few years ago, because of changing Supreme Court jurisprudence, because of other developments like mental health courts or behavioral health courts, because of the growing recognition of wrongful convictions, particularly because of false confessions extracted from mentally vulnerable suspects, because of crisis intervention training with law enforcement, it was time to go back to the drawing board and revise those mental health standards. So an interdisciplinary task force was assembled of judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, as well as psychiatrists who came out with revised standards. And once again, the standards are interdisciplinary in nature. And for instance, the, the standards make a specific call to criminal defense lawyers that we should know about all aspects of the criminal justice system as they impact our clients. So for instance, it's not enough just to know about courtroom proceedings. We need to know about treatment providers in that jurisdiction. And we need to know what services would be helpful to our client pre-trial as well as post-conviction. Well, Elizabeth, you covered so much rich history of the criminal justice section. And I hope our listeners will appreciate how exhaustive your efforts have been in trying to track down the most important moments in history to review what our involvement has been. And you really did a great job of walking us through the evolution of the progress of mental health and mental disabilities in the criminal justice system, and also more specifically the criminal justice section. And I hope our listeners will agree with your assessment that it sounds like we can feel pretty good about the work that we've been doing and take a little bit of credit for the development of the criminal justice system in this space. Would you agree with that? Is that, am I realizing what you were saying? Not sure. Okay. (laughs) And and one of the reasons why I so respect and, and love the criminal justice section is it is collaborative. We have judges, we have prosecutors, we have criminal defense lawyers. And in terms of the prosecutors and the criminal defense lawyers, we never abandon our commitment within the adversarial system. 
but by the same token, we try and come together to promote justice and to make sure that we can fashion a system that serves and represents all. In fact, in the early days of the section, they embraced what they called an umbrella concept. And virtually every resolution that has been passed by the criminal justice section in recent years is a product of that umbrella system, is a product of that collaboration. Thank you for that insight. That is so valuable. So you talked about the mental health standards, which I appreciate. And for our listeners, as a reminder, we did do an episode with Dr. Eric Drogan on the subject of the mental health standards in season one. So if you're interested in learning more about that, that was more practitioner focused and how to use the mental health standards as opposed to just an exhaustive review of the mental health standards, but still very informative and would encourage you to listen to that. And we also just recently had an episode where we reviewed the history of the standards that Elizabeth was speaking to. So if you're interested in learning more about the process of the standards, you can refer to that recent episode as well. And, and, so, and Emily, oh, if, mm-hmm. if I can also note for your listeners, in the upcoming issue of Criminal Justice Magazine, Dr. Drogan and I have another article about the standards. We call them the greatest document that no one has ever heard of because we truly think it's a wonderful document and we want to see practitioners consulting it more, particularly before ethical quandaries arise. And we want to see practitioners citing them in their briefs. We want to see courts citing to the standards in their decisions. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, which issue is that? Is that the fall issue that you're referring I to? I believe so, yes. Or okay. simply because there is so much content in the fall issue, it might be dumped to the winter issue. I'm okay. not sure. But <laughs> okay. it is in the queue for publication. Great. Well, thank you for that. So let's talk more about what's going on currently within the section. Sure. When I was on last time, we discussed my book, which had been published by the American Bar Association, titled Representing People with Mental Disabilities, A Practical Guide for Criminal Defense Lawyers. And in May of this year, the ABA published a second book titled Representing People with Autism Spectrum Disorders, A Practical Guide for Criminal Defense Lawyers. Excellent. And would you please just Give us an idea for our listeners of what they can find in those books, especially the second book that you mentioned, since this will be their first introduction to it. Thank you, Emily. Both of those books are designed to be intensely practical. I have all types of authors submitting chapters in both books, not just law professors and judges, but public defenders private practitioners. Chapters are short. They are meant to be in English because we as attorneys sometimes tend to veer off into legalese. They're not heavily footnoted. And the thought is if you have just acquired a client and you're not quite sure if that client is is competent 
to stand trial, let alone go through the proceedings, you can consult, for instance, chapter one in the first book titled Competency by Dr. Eric Drogan. The second book on autism spectrum disorders is a recognition that more and more people in the criminal justice system are identified as having autism spectrum disorders. And this is what we sometimes call a hidden disability. There are some people on the spectrum who, if you will, are rather low functioning. And defenders as well as prosecutors and courts can fairly easily recognize those individuals. But there are other individuals on the spectrum, particularly those who are high functioning or have what we used to call Asperger's syndrome, who are also vulnerable within the criminal justice system because of their disabilities. So the book on autism spectrum disorders not only discusses concepts like competency and criminal responsibility, but also discusses how to design a mitigation plan using resources within the community, how to put together a plan such that the client does not reoffend. It talks about whether people with autism spectrum disorders are actually more violent than quote unquote neurotypical people. It discusses what we call co-occurring disorders. That is to say, many people with autism spectrum disorders have other conditions like ADHD. And it also discusses what to do if your client, in fact, does go to prison and how to design a plan in advance with the institution that best serves your client. All right, well, thank you again for sharing all the insights into that book. It sounds like there's a lot of great information in there for our listeners. And listeners, just so you know, if you're wondering how you can find this book, that will be available on the ABA website um, in the publications section. We also have that. So look for it there. And we will go ahead and link to the mental health standards in the episode details. So look for those there. So thank you again, Elizabeth, for doing the research necessary to help us review our history in this space. It's been really informative. I've really enjoyed learning more about it. And I hope our listeners will agree that it's been very informative and fun to look back on what our history has been. So thank you again for your work in doing that. Thank you, Emily. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.